The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning. Today's scripture is going to come from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. And if you're looking in the Black Pew Bible, you can find that on page 949. Please stand with me as I read God's word. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This is the word of God. Then as you guys are sitting down, I'm going to continue reading 15 through 25. I would encourage you to follow along. The writer continues, notice these are very, very practical overflows of all that we've been talking about. We're going to have a lot to say about that this morning, okay? So verse 15, the author continues, through him, then what should we do? Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly, which I think is a riot of a verse. We've been in this thing since May. This is a brief word from the author here. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as um, you're probably stitching together, we're landing the plane on Hebrews today. We are going to look at the practical overflow of everything we've been talking about now for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, okay? The sermon titled this morning is simply this, Spiritual Progress. Spiritual Progress. The author is getting down to the nitty-gritty of just what does it look like to practically run the race of faith. And the main idea that he's going to press on us this morning from this chapter is this, that in your race of faith, spiritual progress is an everyday pursuit. Spiritual progress is an everyday pursuit. It is truly that idea, if you are running the race, 
The idea is that you will be making progress forward, not perfectly. There will be sometimes we go forward a little bit and we go back a little bit. It's that idea of tripping and stumbling along the race. But the idea is that there will be some general trajectory of spiritual growth and spiritual progress as the overflow of the grace and the mercy we have received from Jesus Christ, our great high priest. The author is going to help us understand what that can look like here in Hebrews 13, okay? So I'm going to pray. We're going to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to uh, grip us as we submit ourselves to the authority of God's Word, and so that we um, will go to Him, and that's why we're going to pray and ask Him for our help, okay? So let's do that, and then we'll dive into our text. Father, our aim is to see You glorified. Jesus, You are the one that we love because... You have saved us. So Holy Spirit, we're asking that You would turn our hearts to our Father who is worthy to receive praise. Turn our hearts to the Son whom is worthy of being the object of our affections. We want the spotlight put on Christ the King. And Holy Spirit, You love to do that. So I'm asking that you, Father, would grant an empowering, a demonstration of the Spirit so that the words that I'm about to speak would not just be the merely plausible words of man, but they would be a full-blown demonstration of the Spirit and His power that would lead us to further lay hold of our Christ by faith. Strengthen us in the practical realities of what it looks like to run the race do this this morning, Lord God. It's in the name of Christ our King I pray these things. Amen. The question before us is this, saints. In light of 12 chapters talking about how Jesus is better, the question comes down to this. How then should I live? How then should I live? Right? Doctrine is not merely for doctrine's sake. Doctrine isn't so that we can all walk out of here with big fatty pumpkin heads full of knowledge, but doctrine is meant to work itself out into the hands and the feet, so to speak, of our spiritual lives. We want to see doctrine applied in a way to where because we believe X, it actually reflects in how we think and how we believe and how we speak and how we pray and how we fight sin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the question that the author is finally turning to now is this, how then should I live? Because of 12 chapters of Christ-exalting truth, 12 chapters spent magnifying all the ways that Jesus is better, it has finally come down to this. Saint, brother, sister, adopted into the family of God, what does all of this mean for when you step out these back doors and you roll into the next six days and 22 hours of going through everyday life as a man or a woman who's been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does this practically mean for you? What does this practically mean for me? That's what chapter 13 is all about. Chapter 13 is the answer to the question, how then should I live? Chapter 13 is saying this is what it looks like to do this. It's time to get down to brass tacks. If we're going to run the race of faith firm to the end, the exercise of our faith along the way is going to look like something as we press toward the prize of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? This is chapter 13 in essence is sort of the captain obvious moment of this letter that has been written to God's, pe God's people. And the captain obvious moment is this, spiritual progress isn't nothing. Spiritual progress looks like something. It'd be like any of you coming up here, taking the mic and saying, in a couple of months, I'm going to be running a marathon, 26-something miles. I'm going to go and run it, and I'm going to run it in such a way to win. I'm going to run it to run firm to the end. I will be one who crosses the tape. And then you ask the question, well, what are you doing to make progress so that you can exercise yourself all the way through to the end. And the person's like, nah, I'm going to do nothing. Nah, nah, I'm just going to sit on the couch and do absolutely nothing. And on the race day, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to run the race. He's like, no, no. All of us would look at the person quizzically and go, no, no, I don't think you've quite, quite 
connected the dots here. To run in such a way that you win the race looks like something. There's some measure of exercising your faith in order to progress and grow so that you might finish the race. Run in such a way so that you might live. I'm telling you, saints, this is practicality 101. Most of the times, we're just like, our Bibles, they feel so out there. Like, chapter 13 is not one of those out there chapters. Chapter 13 is one of those chapters you're going to say, listen, this is what it looks like. You love your brothers and sisters. This is what it looks like. You care for those saints who are in prison. This is what it looks like. You pray. This is what it looks like. You guard your heart against sin. Like, these are some of the practical realities that make us go, okay, you know, that's all it is. And yes, that's all it is. But the thing is, none of us are perfect at doing that's all it is. And it comes down to the author saying, powered by the Holy Spirit, along by the Holy Spirit, saying, this is what it looks like. This is how you can know you're actually progressing in the race. This is what the marks and measures will look like in your life. So he's not going to leave us in the dark on how we progress towards the finish line. He's going to get practical and he's going to get specific. Because Jesus is better than the angels, because the God-man is greater than Moses, Joshua, and Aaron, because Jesus is the better priest who mediates the better covenant and acted on better promises, bringing a better hope, because Jesus is the better sacrifice who offered the better blood, making possible our entrance into the better tabernacle and welcoming us into the better country of heaven, he says, now, this is what your life should look like as you live according to the Jesus is better realities that we've just spent talking about for the past 12 chapters. And the first thing you can know about in your life to know that you're truly running forward, that you're making spiritual progress, that you're exercising your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, here are some practical realities that will mark that. The first one is this, I will care for those around me. I will care for those around me. Now, some of you are nervous because I can be a bit of a blowhard. And you guys are like, we've got the whole chapter. This cat's going to try to knock out, man, like we're going to be here till two in the afternoon. Tom says he's okay with that, but that might be the only person who's okay with that. So what you need to know is this. I'm flying high over some of these things. I originally had this chapter divvied up into three sermons, but I'm like, I think that might knock us out a little bit, okay? So we're going to land the plane on one. What you need to know is this. These things we're about to talk about are not so you can earn your salvation. He's not saying, go and do this, love others, so you can earn your salvation. You can't do anything to earn your salvation, saints. The only one person who has the right and power to do that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, he has earned it. You don't do these things to get more grace. Remember what Hebrews 4 said, we can go to our great high priest who rules and reigns on a throne of grace and we can come to him to find the mercy we need, find the grace we need in our time of help. He's simply saying, I'm about to define the path for you so that you can run forward as an overflow of grace received from the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to say everything that could be said about these things. It is for you to go and be good Bereans to go and study your Bible, to open it up and begin to ask yourselves, what could this look like for me to go deeper in these realities? All right, first point, I will care for those around me. Look in your Bible, starting in verse 1. Just look at the language of how he says, this is how you can run the race practically. Here's how you can exercise your faith in the race of faith. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, so that is looking outward to others, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, that's looking outward to others, as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. See, in the race of faith, listen, spiritual progress is practical, crazy practical. There's like no secret formulas lying here in verse 13 or in chapter 13. It's just extremely practical, and one practical way to run the race is our continued growth in what the author calls brotherly love. The word behind brotherly love is a familiar word to us. It's a word in the original language, which is Philadelphia, 
right? So you split that word up. Philo means love. Adelphos means brother. That's why the city in Pennsylvania is called the city of brotherly love. That's the city of Philadelphia, all right? The men and women, the author says, who know the brotherly love of our older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who know will know they are making progress in the race of faith, he says, as they see themselves growing in love towards others as they have been loved themselves. So 1 John 4, God loved us first. We are able to love others properly as a result of that. And the author is simply saying the overflow of that love received looks like a brotherly love that flows outward towards others. The mark of a disciple is loving your spiritual siblings. This idea of brotherly there is a brother-sister reality adopted into the family of God. Spiritual siblings will know they are practically making a pursuit towards the end when they find themselves truly loving their spiritual siblings. But notice that it doesn't stop at only loving folks in the Jesus family. There are myriads of ways to apply this reality of continue in brotherly love, but the author zooms in on two, and he says, here's just two examples of how the way we've been loved by God through the sending of the Lord Jesus Christ, His crucifixion, His resurrection, that is the epitome, the pinnacle of God's love for us when we know that reality in a saving way. Here's two ways to where when that gets hold of you, you will begin to see this in an outward way. The first one is this. You will not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That's one way brotherly love is expressed concretely. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. So what's interesting is that the word behind show hospitality, it's not saying that you need to know how to like roll out the doilies and like whip up a good pie when, and some coffee when uh, a stranger or a neighbor comes knocking on the door. The idea behind biblical hospitality when it says show hospitality to strangers is actually buried in the meaning of the word. The idea behind the word show hospitality is the word philozenia. So notice what he's saying here. It's a love of strangers. Philo is love. Xenia is stranger. So what he's saying is brotherly love, Philadelphia, looks like love of strangers, philozenia. So the love aspect means when you know the love of our chief brother, it should flow in you and then out towards those who are strangers. And these strangers could be other Christians we don't know. That would have been a very appropriate context here in these verses. But it also carries that idea of the broader category of just legit strangers not in the family of God. Neighbors, co-workers, friends. Either way, the idea here is that motivated by brotherly love, we look out, listen, we look out for the needs of others by welcoming them, them into our home. And this isn't mere entertainment. This isn't so that you can be some sort of like, you know, uh, you know uh, spiritual Martha Stewart. But the sacrificial, generous opening of our homes is to take place in order to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what the author is saying is when you know the brotherly love of Jesus Christ, the result is that our homes will become a hub to where our homes reflect and become sort of ground zero for others to experience that same love. Now all the introverts among us are saying, oh no. Some of the extroverts among us are saying, we're going to do this thing. We're, I mean, we're going to hospitality even harder right now, right? We're going to go and do this. The reality is that opening our homes so others can hear and see Jesus through us is hard to do. But notice that the author says it is something to not be neglected. And I think one of the ways we will march forward into the world in which we find ourselves in 
is to recognize that the way we live in those six days and 22 hours, the gospel can and will and does spread like wildfire as we neighbor our neighbors with love that we have received by opening our homes in ways that make sense for our families so that way we can see the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ advance is not to be neglected. Now, the other way we let brotherly love continue is by, verse 3, remembering those who are in prison. And this isn't people in prison in general, but in the context of this Jewish, uh, the context of the Jewish Christians receiving this letter, it would more accurately be Christians who've been thrown in prison for the crime of being a Christian. If you go back to chapter 10, remember, their property has been ransacked, their homes have been burgled, they have been persecuted, abused, all kinds of things, just because they're, they're following Jesus. Now, we don't see this in our nation yet. I'm convinced that one day it is going to come, saints, where our context and our nation will catch up to like the other 90% of Christians living throughout the world. It's going to come. So don't be surprised by that when it does come but for the vast majority of our brothers and sisters in the family of God this is a present tense reality when your brothers and sisters in China and in Africa and Southeast Asia and in Central Asia seeing I have decided to follow Jesus no turning back no turning back it is a decision to make hard realities come your way. It's a decision to say, I will not forsake the Lord Jesus Christ, come what may, and usually what comes is persecution, hardship, loss of job, imprisonment. So being in prison, it's obvious then that these brothers and sisters in the Jesus family can't provide for themselves, can't provide for their families, so the author says, remember them. They need help. These are your brothers and sisters. Again, if you go back to Hebrews 10, you'll see how they practically did this. When those folks were thrown in prison, did they shirk back and shrink back from them? No, they actually linked themselves with them, and he's just commending them for for doing what they've already been doing. So why must we remember them? Because, he says there, while they are in prison, it's as though you are in prison with them. That's why we will pray during our pastoral time for the persecuted church. They are a part of your Jesus family, the man in China who just got arrested, the pastor of Early Rain Covenant Church who just got 25 years from even having a Bible study in his home, or those brothers and sisters in Central Asia who are being ostracized and persecuted because they've said, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. You are suffering with them. Their suffering is actually your suffering too because, he says, you are also in the same body of Christ. So when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. You guys know this. Some of you woke up early this morning and your early mornings look like a zombie and you're zombieing your way into the kitchen and you busted your toe. And when your toe hurt, all of a sudden you're sitting there limping around and it's not just your toe that's throbbing because you're trying to, to baby your toe, your back begins to hurt because you're walking weird, and then all of a sudden you begin to limp. and different. So you know the deal. You hurt one part of the body. The whole body hurts and feels that reality. And the body imagery in the Bible is so stinking beautiful because the toe of the body that's in prison means we here in America should be hurting just as much as they're hurting. Why? Because we're part of the same Jesus body, the body of those who've been born again. Practically, what could this look like? There's plenty, of, um, there's plenty of ministries out there, but the one that has served us the most is just a ministry called Voice of the Martyrs. Here's what I encourage you guys to do. Go home this afternoon. Go to their website for free. You can give them, their email, or give them your home address, and they will send you on a quarterly, sometimes monthly basis, a magazine of just stories of faithful brothers and sisters who are just persevering in the faith as they're persecuted, And what we try to do is during our supper time evenings, when the new magazine comes in, we'll just read one of those stories and just say, how does this encourage us? How can we pray for them? I mean, that is just practical way to remember. Voice of the martyrs, go, go and do it. I would encourage you. So that's one good sign. 
I'm making spiritual progress in the race of faith. It's whether I care for those around me, right? So brotherly love received, and now we're going to look outward in this way. But that's not the only way. Another sign is this. Point number two, I will examine myself inwardly. So remember, we're running the race of faith. What does spiritual progress look like? It looks like eyes that turn outward, and it looks like, in a sense, eyes that turn inward. We will guard ourselves, look, examine ourselves inwardly. Look, starting in verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. I will examine myself inwardly. The practical pursuit of spiritual growth continues, and there's a lot the author could have focused on as it relates to keeping a close watch on our own lives. That's what he's talking about right now. Dual reality, running the race, outwardly watching, inwardly examining. But to make his point, the author focuses in on two common struggles that we all have in the race of faith, sex and money. Sex and money. So starting with sex, he says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So what our world categorically denies is that marriage is God's plan, and he alone has the right to define it, and to define it specifically as the faithful union between one man and one woman. The world just categorically denies this. All you have to do is just turn on your news feed, and you could see this in full, full effect. The gift of sex is also God's design, and it is meant to be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage. It's His good gift. It's His gift to His creation. And He says, enjoy this gift, but it's to be enjoyed within a very particular boundary. The world today says freedom and true love looks like no boundaries whatsoever, which is insane. It's so anti God's plan. It's so opposite of what is true. We know true love and we find true freedom by living within the boundaries of what the designer, God, our creator, has gifted to us. So as we run the race of faith, the question we should ask ourselves is this, as we examine ourselves inwardly, is this, is my view of marriage informed by the God who designed it or more informed by the world who rages against God? Like, is my view of marriage being informed by the Word of God revealed to us so that we might live and grow in life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1, or is our view of marriage more informed by, insert into the blank, any form of social media, any form of worldly news, any form of worldly entertainment? My fear, brothers and sisters, is that too many of us have a more worldly view of marriage because we listen to and let those things form and shape our view of marriage more than submitting to the authority of the Scriptures on these things. You can ask the question, do I view sex as God's gift to be enjoyed within His boundaries as defined by God, or have I adopted a view that's been defiled by the Spirit of the age? You see, wrestling with answers to questions like these is important because marriage and sexual intimacy within marriage are pictures that point to something bigger and greater. Marriage and the gift of sexual intimacy actually point to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Ephesians 3 and Ephesians 5. When Ephesians 5 says marriage between one man and one woman, those two becoming one, he says there's a mystery here. It reveals something so beautiful and so true about how two become one inside this gospel reality, this gospel mystery, this thing called the church. You jump back in time to Ephesians 3, and he unpacks what that mystery is. It's Jew and Gentile, these two becoming one in this entity now known as the church all because of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one, one relationship here on earth designed by God himself to reflect the realities of the gospel. No other relationship in the world has this. One relationship does. Marriage between one man and one woman. 
And when a man and a wife come together in the intimacy of sex, naked and unashamed with their body, saying the way we're naked and unashamed in our body, that is the outward reflection of the way we're naked and unashamed spiritually, naked and unashamed emotionally, naked and unashamed communicatively, naked and unashamed in all aspects of our life. This is the overflow of this reality The Scriptures would say what that is is a picture. The world should be able to look at a husband and wife the way the husband is living like Jesus, sacrificing his life like Jesus for his bride, the way the bride is submitting to her husband, loving him, respecting him. The world should be able to look at this reality and say because this relationship is falling within the boundaries of marriage, there is something being spoken without words because of this relationship. So for a pastor to get up like me and say, you know, marriage and sex, it's important. Most of us are like, yeah, no, I'm not buying it. Pfft, I guess, whatever. But it's because we don't know what the Bible says about marriage and sex. It speaks and points to something bigger and greater, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why when we get to heaven, we won't need marriage anymore because we're actually going to be able to see the fullness of the reality that marriage and sex pointed forward to. Yeah? You won't need to see the picture anymore because the fullness of the reality will be in front of us as the bride of Christ gets to be with our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, for all eternity to keep the metaphor going, which is a very biblical metaphor as well. Now, another possible idol, well, I should say this. It's no small thing to disregard this because, as he says over here in verse 4, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. If there's one verse that you want to uh, see if the Bible brings some measure of disdain um, from the world, you can go and quote them Hebrews 13.4. Uh, because the world is vehemently opposed to this reality. But that's not the only thing. It's sex and money. Another possible idol that can stunt our spiritual progress is the love of money. Notice it's not money itself. It's the love of this thing. It's not that money is bad, but rather the love of it that we must keep from. Love of money betrays that we are not content When you want to love something more than you love Christ, it is revealing that your heart is not satisfied in Christ. Love of money betrays that we're not content, thus the command there to be content with what you have. Now, this isn't just for the wealthy, but also for the poor. The wealthy can love money and the poor can love money. So no matter your bank account size, everyone can be tempted to love money. So what's the practical help? Here it is. What's the practical help in fighting a heart that loves money or is tempted to love money more than God? What does he say here by quoting these two two Old Testament verses here? It's this. Just remember the promises of God. Here's how you practically fight your drifting heart that wants to love money more than God. Joshua chapter 1 verse 5. He is the one, God is the one who has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. We begin to drift towards love of other things when we begin to forget that God never leaves nor forsakes. If you believe or begin or are tempted to flirt with the idea that God will leave us or God will forsake me, we will drift to the place where we begin to say, I need something to make sure uh, I can fall, like, right, I need a, a safety net. I'm not sure God will be there. I'm not sure that he will never leave. I'm pretty sure he might leave. I'm pretty sure he might forsake. When you think that, you will drift to something else, hoping that that thing will never leave you, that that thing will never forsake you. And it's easy for us to drift to money to make it that way. But as we all know, money comes, money goes, but it's the Lord God who never vacillates. That's why our confidence is not in money, but in the provision of, he says, the Lord our helper. And because he provides, we can say, I will not fear. For ultimately, what can man do to me? 
Man might come, man might take your money, and then where are you going to rest? Man might take your job, then where are you going to rest? When you make something other than God your place of never leaving, never forsaking, I'm telling you, someone can come and suck that right out from underneath you. But no one can do that to the Lord God, all right? So, again, all extremely practical, yeah? Like, I'm not saying anything groundbreaking here, but he's just saying, like, this is just what it looks like, guys. This is what the everyday, in and out, day in, day out, pursuit of the Lord Jesus looks like. Looking outwardly, looking inwardly, but it's not merely a one-man show. So far, that's been pretty on the individual level, right? So while our salvation is personal, it's not private, and a healthy running in the race means this, that I will embrace the need for help. Embrace the need for help. So we're running the race, looking outwardly, running the race, guarding our heart, running the race, recognizing I wasn't designed to run the race on my own. Not digging in your heels, ah, no one will help me, but embracing the idea that you've been created as a man or a woman to have help. This is verses 7 through 19. Look, starting in verses 7 through 17, I'm going to give us just some little categories of thought here. And again, this is for you to go home and do your homework on. 7 and 17. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. Jump down to verse 17. He's going to say something similar but different. Obey your leaders. Submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. As we've said, the walk of faith is like a long-distance run, and the reality of that run is that it can be like a cross-country race that twists and turns and winds and goes up and goes down. It has roots. It has rocks. It has all kinds of tripping hazards and dangers. We have said this multiple times. He's just pressing down on it one last time. You need help in the race of faith. Because the long distance run is very similar to like that cross country, high, low, twist, turn, stumbling, fumbling, hazards all over the place, what we need is a guide. A guide. Someone to come along and say, watch out for the rock here. Don't trip on this route here. You're closer than when you first began. Keep going. And the guides that we need in the race says here, are our spiritual leaders, our spiritual leaders. Verses 7 and 17, the author lights, author highlights who those guides are, spiritual leaders. So we need to embrace our need for help. We need help from our spiritual leaders. This is what we need for our progress in the race of faith. In the church, God has provided pastors and elders who speak the word of God to us. It's these leaders we are called to remember as we consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their example. It's interesting there. Imitate their example. It's that 1 Corinthians 11 reality where Paul says, insofar as I'm pursuing Jesus, imitate me. So he had no problem saying that like, as I'm running after Jesus, we have examples that we can imitate, people who can spur us on to run the race. Oftentimes, our spiritual progress can be helped along by simply looking to and following Christ-abiding elders, pastors, leaders who walk in front of us. Show of hands, legitimate. This is, this is not one way right now. Show of hands, how many of us have said, because I saw person X's example in the Christian life, the way they did whatever, prayed, sought the Lord, fasted, fought sin, repented when they did sin, whatever it is, you can say, I looked at their example, that pastor, that elder, that leader, and that helped me run the race a little bit further. Yeah, there you go. You guys are living proof of this verse right here. You were helped. It's these spiritual leaders who help us that we're called to obey and submit to. It's these spiritual leaders who are keeping watch over our souls. As a result, they're going to have to give an account to Jesus and so he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Uh, if we had more time, that would be fun to unpack, for that would be of no advantage to you. Um, it's a weird place to be preaching on this, 
because I'm the person that this is talking about, one of them here in our church, right? And so, uh, but what you need to know is that uh, you guys are not this verse. I'll speak on behalf of the elders and say um, there's a lot of joy and not a lot of groaning in pastoring you all. And for that, we are very thankful, okay? But for some of us, let's continue. Our stunted progress in the race of faith isn't due to failure of seeking help from spiritual leaders. So all of us who just raised our hand and said, I've grown. My progress in the race of faith has, has increased because of the example of someone else running before me. But you still find yourself not growing as you would like, and it could be this. It's because you haven't sought help to avoid the dangers along the race. It's possible to go, man, your running of the race, Pastor Brian, has encouraged me to run the race. Thank you for that help. And then to turn around and keep running the race and keep tripping and stumbling over stuff because there's things in my life that I keep drifting toward, I keep believing wrongly, and I haven't asked someone else to come in to my life and say, would you help me avoid the dangers along the race? There's one particular danger I just keep tripping over, and somehow we've bought into the lie that I don't need to ask others to help me to avoid that. Eventually, someday, hopefully, I will just start to be able to figure out how to like jump over these dangers. And what this is saying is like, dude, stop trying to figure it out on your own. Ask for help in avoiding the dangers. As we said a couple of weeks ago, there's all kinds of dangers, toils, and snares. There's the danger of false teaching. You see that in verses 8 and 9. The danger of false teaching has gobbled many up with their diverse or new, strange teachings, it says there in verse 9. The fundamental reason we should be wary of diverse, new, strange teachings is because of what verse 8 says. Jesus is the one who never changes. Jesus is the same yesterday. Jesus is the same today. Jesus is the same forever. So anyone who comes along promising a new, better, diverse, strange, new path to Jesus, I'm telling you, are most assuredly abandoning the ancient path of the gospel. And they're leading you astray. They're taking you somewhere you don't want to go. That's why Jeremiah 6 says, guys, we need to stay on the ancient path. In a sense, what you need to know is that your elders lead from the place where we're not trying to be innovative here. We're calling you to submit to your, the Scriptures. We're calling you to see the glories of Jesus Christ. We're calling you to cling to this core reality of the gospel and, and not go anywhere else. We're not trying to be innovative in that, in that regard. We're trying to be very uninnovative in that sense. That is the ancient path. And for someone to come along and say, man, the ancient path is so dry. It's so boring. How many times is Pastor John going to talk about Christ and talk about the gospel and talk about prayer and talk about pursuing others for the sake of the Lord? How many times? How many times? How many times? Until Christ extracts breath from these lungs and I go into the grave. Because for me to say, we need to spice it up a little bit. We need to get innovative. You try to sprinkle a little of something extra on there is to begin to flirt with a path that is strange, new, and diverse. We don't need it. Everything we need for life and godliness is right here in the scriptures, okay? All right. We also see that a practical pursuit of Jesus, we need help to avoid the danger of drifting. All right? So there's the danger of false teaching, the danger of drifting. All kinds of ways we can drift. We are prone to drift from God's grace. I was saved by grace. And then we begin to lean and run after all kinds of things, thinking that that grace um, we don't need anymore. That's why he says at the end of verse 9, it is good to the, for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Why? Because you can drift from that. Okay? As the book of Hebrews has shown, there's always the danger of drifting from Jesus. Just begin to go, yeah, the Jesus stuff. I get it, I get it. Stop talking about the Jesus stuff. And what we do is we drift to religious rules we hope will save us. But the reminder is that we must continually go to Jesus who suffered outside the gate. It's Jesus who sanctified his people through his own blood. So those who know their need for help are going to continue to follow after Jesus no matter what comes. They will bear the reproach that he endured. Why? Because Jesus is my Savior. I don't need to go anywhere else. The prize is the city that is to come. That's where I'm going. We even need help to avoid the danger of drifting from sacrificial living. 
There's a reason why in Galatians 6 and 1 Corinthians 15 that the Apostle Paul says, do not grow weary of doing good. We can grow weary in the race. Amen? And it can be wearisome to be a sacrificial person. But God is worthy of our sacrifice and praise, verse 15. To do good and share what we have, verse 16. Our sacrifice is pleasing to God, but as we all know, we sometimes grow weary and no longer are willing to live sacrificially. Have you, man or woman here this morning, who have grown weary of being open-handed with the things God has given you, grown weary of offering a sacrifice of praise, have grown weary in doing good, have grown weary in sharing what you have, have you said to someone else, I'm growing weary and I need your help because I'm in danger of drifting away from the very thing that just identifies a run-of-the-mill, everyday pursuit of the Lord Jesus. And I don't want to drift. Will you, will you help me in this? And lastly, he says, this is why we need help in the form of prayer. Amen? Specifically, help in praying for our spiritual leaders. That's verses 18 and 19. Pray for us, says the author. Pray for us. Can I just adopt those words and say to you, would you pray for us? <laughs> as your pastors and as your elders, as we just navigate things, would you just pray for us? For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you, he says, the more earnestly do this. Do what? Pray for us in order, he says to the Jewish Christians, that I may be restored to you the sooner. I find this amazingly practical. Imagine growth in Christ by saying to someone, help please. I mean, do you just see how simple it can be by saying, I'm not growing as much as I would like? Well, have you asked for someone to help you to grow? Have you said that in your community group? Are you in a discipleship group where you've looked at the person across from you and said, will you please help me grow? It could be that we're not growing or pursuing growth in our Christian life because we're too stubborn, prideful, apathetic, or lazy to say to someone in the body of Christ, would you please help? The author is saying practically, it just looks like you opening your mouth and just saying, I need help. Would you be willing to help me? And that's it. The author wraps it all up. Notice these last verses are just simply a good word ending. Starting in verse 20, he concludes his brief word of exhortation with a benediction big fancy church word that just means a good word. Bene means good, diction, word. So here's your good word. We have a good word, he says, starting in verse 20, from our God of peace. A good word that the Lord Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. A good word that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. A good word that the eternal covenant has been sealed by the blood of Jesus. A good word that we have been equipped to do God's will, a good word that he works in us that which is pleasing in his sight, and a good word that all this is possible through Jesus Christ, the one to whom belongs glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's a good word to end on right there. Saints, Jesus is better, is he not? Amen. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. So let me tie this into Advent. Jesus, what we're celebrating in this Advent season, is in the fullness of time, the Lord Jesus came. Born in a cradle, would go to a cross and bring what the Hebrew writers would tell us is the better blood of a better sacrifice so that sin-dead sinners might know salvation. That is what we celebrate during this Advent season. That first arrival of the Christ. You could peek over into the manger, as it were, and you could look in, and what you're looking at when you look into that little baby's eyes is you're looking at the great high priest, the perfect God-man, fully God, fully 
man, the great high priest who rules on a throne of grace, and you can look at him and go, my hope is built on nothing less than the blood and the sacrifice of this little child. Like, that's what we're celebrating during the Advent season. And so you pull that into Hebrews 13, and the Hebrews author is saying, because of what the Advent season is all about, here's the way you run the race practically. This is how you do it. He is better than anything this world can offer. So here's the invitation at the end of Hebrews. Come, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. And here's his heart for you, full of pity, full of love, full of power. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for loving us, loving us through your sacrifice on the cross for us, loving us by bearing the weight and wrath of a holy God, the weight and wrath that should have been due to us for our sin, but you bore that in our place. You bore the shame. You bore the guilt. You took our punishment, and in our place, condemned you stood. But then three days later, you burst out of that grave. You burst out of that grave. You defeated Satan. You defeated sin. You defeated death. The absolute proof that you are the better blood, the better sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is that there is no body in that Palestinian grave. None. The resurrection stands as that proof. God, thank you for the gift of your Son. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the gift of coming and loving us and doing what you could do alone and what we needed you to do on our behalf. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for getting practical. God, we need that help so badly. Thank you for loving us by using this author, carrying him along so that we might walk out of here and go, okay, there's several things that were said. Here's one thing, Lord, that I can grow in and I want to grow in, so would you grow me in this? And would you show me who can help me and how to grow in these ways so that I might run the race of faith in a way that brings you honor and glory? Jesus, thank you that the promise of Hebrews 4 is this, is that we will find the grace and mercy we need in our time of help. So Lord, I'm begging you on behalf of my brothers and sisters here, every one of us in some way find ourselves in need of help. We have a time of help present right now, present tense in our lap. Would you lead these brothers and sisters, Lord, to be obedient to the next step of asking for help confessing to Jesus, trusting in him, and walking in obedience to him. Lord, turn this city, turn this county upside down as this Jesus people walks out of here, empowered by the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ for the glory of God. It's in the name of our King we pray these things. Amen.